Hello? Yes, this is Mrs. McNeil. Operator, you have got to be kidding. I have been on this line for 20 minutes. Jesus Christ, can you believe this? He doesn't even call his daughter on her birthday, for Christ's sake. Maybe the circuit is busy. Oh, circuit's my ass. He doesn't give a shit. Look, why don't you let me... No, I've got it, Sharon. It's all right. Yes? No, operator, don't tell me there's no answer. It's the Hotel Excelsior in Rome. Would you try it again, please, and let it ring? Hello? Yes? No, operator, I've given you the number four times. What do you do, take an illiteracy test to get that job, for Christ's sakes? No, don't tell me to be calm, goddammit! I've been on this fucking line for 20 minutes! Hello and welcome to The Letterbox Show, the podcast about movies people love watching from Letterboxd, the social network for people who love watching movies. The horror genre would be nothing, nothing without the soundtracks that go along with it. Halloween without John Carpenter? Dark Man without Danny Elfman? Get Out without Michael Abel's Unthinkable? To conclude our spooky season this month, we have a guest who truly cares about horror music. We are lighting candles. We are dusting the vinyl. We're ready to welcome Kevin Bergeron to the show. Along with Susie Soto, Kevin is the founder of Waxwork Records. From their base in New Orleans, Waxwork specialize in releasing film scores and soundtracks on beautiful, beautiful vinyl. Insane covers, gorgeous art on the records themselves. Sometimes blood inside. Uh, Kevin is here to talk a bit about Waxwork and a lot about his four favourite films, which are Black Christmas, Haosu, Tetsuo the Iron Man, and The Exorcist. Kevin, welcome to The Letterbox Show. Thank you for having me. This is awesome. I'm so excited to be here. This might be the hardest four faves has ever gone <laughs> with these picks, I feel like. And we're we're ending with The Exorcist. They're so hard. The Exorcist isn't even at the top. We're ending with The Exorcist, Kevin. It's insane. <laughs> it's different. I mean, it's very unconventional, which is what I'm into. Um, anything that's kind of like outside of the box, I gravitate to. Um, so these, these movies have very unconventional scores, nonlinear, experimental, Mm. music uh mm. so i that's why i mean not only do i love these films but i, I just i love the the sound design the music uh sometimes you can't even really call it a, a soundtrack or a film score because it is just so unconventional so um these are four movies and it's again it's so hard to like choose four favorites that was yeah. incredibly difficult because <laughs> they're always changing but these four have a special place uh in the waxwork caliber, I guess. People are always complaining. They're like, why isn't it three? You're top three, you're top three. And we're like, because we're giving you another slot. We're giving you another choice. <laughs> Should be easier, <laughs> not harder. <laughs> and I, I mean, speaking of limiting yourself, I was doing some prep because I had watched Tetsuo ahead of time, the Iron Man for the first time. This was my first time viewing of Tetsuo, which we'll get into later. <laughs> I love the noise Gemma just made. Oof. <laughs> um, but in doing like the prep, you know, like, oh, I want to hear that music again. And and this kind of sets a larger stage for our conversation. One of the top notes on the Tetsuo soundtrack that I was listening to as prep was, watch this movie. It will blow your effing mind. I, I mean, what a great pitch. If no one has yeah. ever seen Tetsuo the Iron Man, that's quite a pitch. Yeah. But you haven't done a soundtrack release for Tetsuo yet. You know, it is one that like, um, I guess, you know, I'm not letting anything out, out you know letting the cat out the bag or anything, but like, uh, we would love to, uh, we have researched it. it. It's one of those hard ones to get. It's, it's very difficult to license. And, um, and if we were to ever do it, I wouldn't just want to release the Iron Man. I'd want to do all three. Oh. You know, the Bullet Man, Body Hammer. Yeah. Um, I just, I love, love, love the soundtracks to those movies, uh, because they, they're so, uh, abrasive and, um, they're like industrial soundtracks. It's like hard, you know, like I'm really into ministry and nine inch nails and like uh, Neubauten and all these bands. And like, uh, so, uh, when I first watched Tetsuo, I, uh, I had no point of reference for what it was going to sound like. So, uh, hearing the music I'll, it, it, and it starts off immediately with like, you know, the driving, uh, like, uh, uh drum machines and like metal and on, like metal on metal and scraping and music concrete. And you're just kind of like, you're in it, yeah. you know, and like, 
it's it's totally different. I think we're starting there, Slim. We're starting with Tetsuo. Oh my God, let's just get. I mean, please, yeah, let's, let's, just, <laughs> let's just get into it. I mean, this would probably needs some kind of like metal sleeve. If a waxwork, oh I put it like some kind of yeah. like 15, 50 pound, <laughs> like yeah. heavy piece of machinery that you'd have to have like the most insane limited run in history because it, it would probably be so expensive to produce the packaging for it. You, you could hurt yourself on. You could like get cut on. And that's another <laughs> thing about that movie that is so wild is that like when you're watching it, it really seems as if like no precautions were taken to ensure that like the actors weren't harmed on the set. <laughs> you're watching it, you're like, oh my god, like. How did that happen? Like, how did this person not get injured? How did her hair not get caught in the fan? Yeah. She's yeah. And at one point, um, it's just, it's so wild. Like this movie could never get made on like a, uh, they'd be arrested. They would all be arrested on set. <laughs> during yeah, production. Yeah, do we, for those listening who have never seen Tetsuo the Iron Man, do we need Slim? Could you attempt to describe what plot there is? There is, there is a synopsis and, and even before the synopsis, I feel like a lot of people listening have probably heard of this movie, but never ventured to finally watch it. Or they've seen the poster. I've seen the poster a ton of times. My friends have covered this movie on their podcast, and I still never brought myself to watch it until this conversation. A metal fetishist driven mad by the maggots wriggling in his wound. He's made to embed metal into his flesh, runs out into the night and is accidentally run down by a Japanese businessman and his girlfriend. The pair dispose of the corpse in hopes of quietly moving on with their lives. However, <laughs> <luck> with that. <laughs> the businessman soon finds that he is now plagued by a vicious curse that transforms his flesh into iron. And for folks that may be like, oh, I don't want to watch two hours of that. Guess what? <laughs> It's only like 70 minutes long, so now is the time for you to finally... 67 it's, it's, yeah, 60, minutes. 67 minutes. <laughs> and you still have to take breaks. Yeah. That's how wild it is. Yeah, yes. you really, really do. There's, wait, there's a review on Letterboxd from Hoyden who writes, I've never seen another movie that starts off so strong and then goes so hard for its entire runtime. And personally for me, it was like, there's a list... There's a list that's like movies that have the craziest last 15 or 20 minutes. That's Milo who's made that list. And I discovered that list when I still had 30 minutes to go of this film. And I was like, <laughs> how? How does this get crazier than it already it does. You know, what, something that I wanted to say about it being such like a dirty and gritty movie that's like so in your face. Um, I was watching it with, with Sue Ellen and she was like, you know, this movie has, it's not just the score that's amazing. It's the sound design. The sound design, she said, this is almost like the very first ASMR video. It's yeah. it, the sound design is so in your face, in your ears, in your brain. It just like creeps and like it gets into you uh, under your skin. You know, it, it's so cool. It's so awesome. Yeah. There's someone, uh, Ellie wrote on Letterboxd. I'd never heard sound design quite like this and felt like someone was just scratching the inside of my skull. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote in my notes that if I had seen this as a kid, it probably would have warped most of my movie watching for the rest of my life. Like if I had seen this when I was in high school or something and I'd like got a tape at like a comic convention or something. So when did you first see Tetsuo? What was that like experience like for you? Honestly, I mean, like I'm, I'm late to the game. I, I saw it maybe, I don't know, maybe like five years ago. I, I always knew about it kind of like in passing. Like I knew about this like movie that it almost seemed like, you know, like you mentioned a VHS that you're secret. You're not supposed to have it, you know, kind of like yeah. a nine inch nails, like home video thing that came out forever ago. So I, I decided to watch it one day on like YouTube and it was just like mind blowing. And I was like, we have to release this. We have to figure <laughs> out. That. So still working on it. It's not, it's not an easy one, but we would love to make it happen. So if, yeah. If ever, finds the powers that be. One day. With crazy <laughs> multi-disc set made of metal. You have, however, put out soundtracks for The Exorcist, which we'll talk about in a wee while, and for Black Christmas. This is mm -hmm. super exciting. And for House, which is a freaking big deal. The first time the soundtrack will be distributed outside of Japan since that film came out in 1977. I just want to jump in here and say to our listeners that Kevin has kindly made a copy of the brand new house soundtrack available for us to give away at, to a random listener to enter. And we'll remind you of this again later. All you have to do is watch and review house 
and tag your review with Waxwork. We'll remind you of that near the end of the show. And you can't just go back and tag an old review because we can see the date <laughs> that you wrote the review. No scams. And so you've got basically until the end of November to do that and you should have the vinyl by Christmas. Speaking of which, let's dive into one of Bob Clark's two very well-known Christmas movies from 1974, <laughs> Black Christmas. This is the original, the call is coming from Inside the House slasher movie yeah. in which a sorority house is terrorised by a stranger who makes frightening phone calls and then murders the sorority sisters during Christmas break. Also, Mrs. Mack yells at her cat Claude a lot. It is, <laughs> And it's number 76 on the letterboxed all-time top horror films. It is a favourite. It's also number six in our highest rated Christmas movies on Letterboxd. Jeez. Christmas is coming, Kevin. It also hasn't been remade once. It's been remade twice. That's how amazing Black Christmas is. <laughs> Two remakes. <laughs> I, I, love, I love one of the Letterboxd lists that we found while, you know, prepping for this movie. Elevated horror is nothing new from Mosquito Dragon. And I feel like that does, that sentiment does get lost. You know, like prestige horror is a phrase that gets tossed around a lot today with a lot of great horror movies that have been released. But Black Christmas was maybe, I think this past year was the first time I'd ever watched it. Really? Uh, yeah, I had never, I think it might have been on Tubi or Pluto or one of the free services. So I finally checked it out and. It's crazy for me as a viewer that came new to it to see the inspiration of other movies oh, yeah. in this. Like, oh my God, like uh, Halloween wasn't even out yet by this point. So, I mean, what do you think about when you when you rewatch Black Christmas? What jumps to mind? All of the same things that you're mentioning right now, you know, it predates Halloween by, what, four, four years, I think? Four or five years. Mm -hmm. um, so, and it, you know, it, it's such a groundbreaking film because it's the very first the call is coming from inside the house, you know, uh, it, there's a lot of like POV shots. It's, it's one of those like, uh, where you usually hear the music or you, you see murders happen while the music is happening. So like, yeah. it's kind of like, a, which that happened several years later with, uh, Harry Manfredini explored that with Friday the 13th. Like the music was, was the, uh, the, the killer. The killer was the music, you know, like it happened in Jaws. Every time that you heard, uh, you know, the Jaws music, like you knew that the, the shark was there, you know? So it's like this ominous thing and what makes it, you know, we talk about the unconventional na nature of, of uh, film scores and this is a prime example of one. Uh, Black Christmas and what Carl Zitcher created, it's so wild and, um, you know, I, I use like the, the phrase outside the box for lack of a better way of explaining it, but it's it's a very unique approach to composing because it's all, he's basically destroying his instruments and recording it. Um, and then taking those recordings, slowing them down, speeding them up, running them through filters, oscillators, echoes, spring reverbs, making this kind of like cacophony of, of, of noise. You know, it's like a noise record. It's not, it's, it's not linear. It's not symphonic. You know, something that was very, very much, um, I guess the norm, and you could say it's still still that way. You know, these these massive 40, 50, 60 piece orchestras, which is fine, but for one singular guy to create like this this um, this really violent, scary, terror. I mean, this, the score. And, and when you watch the film, it's very minimal. Like the score happens like here and there, um, but when you do hear it, it's like it's terrifying. There's moaning, and it, the, the phone calls are coupled with 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 the score itself which makes it even more jarring and crazy and um one thing that i did want to mention is that like all of this being juxtaposed with with christmas carols which is yeah. insane <laughs> you know these kind of like beautiful lovely jovial christmas carols um children singing you know coming to your doorstep <laughs> and then like this this violent scary, terrifying, droning, uh, 
a, a piano literally being deconstructed and him recording that. What does that sound like? I wanted to point out a recent review, someone on Letterboxd called Alex, who's just seen Black Christmas for the first time, writes, found it boring and a drag to go through. Christmas and horror is a weird combination that doesn't work for me here. The ending was good, though. <laughs> like, oh my god like sorry Alex no shade but Christmas and horror totally there's something totally perversely good about that combo and I mean even John Hughes knew that with Home Alone mm-hmm. which is absolutely which is pure horror and and a Christmas movie well that's what makes horror you know so uh an incredible genre and just like um, things being scary in general like when with certain things are, are uh coupled with like, uh, like daytime shots, like, um, there's a shot in the exorcist and we'll get to the, get to this. I'm sure yeah. um, where it's happening during the daytime, you know, you can see the light coming into Reagan's room and things are going crazy. You know, they're, you know, she's ha- being possessed. Um, that's terrifying because, you know, you feel safe in, you know, you're not in the cloak of the night where you can't see what's going on. Like you, you see everything and you're seeing it in real time, the horror happening. Yeah. That's scary. So Christmas, which is supposed to be this safe, family-centric holiday in horror, like couple those together, that's terrifying. I think that's spooky. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and especially in the context of, of the idea of a sorority house where some people have a place to go to at Christmas and some people don't. And, you know, your mm-hmm. sorority yeah. house and your sorority mom, Mrs. Mac, you know, this should be a safe place for you and it's 100% Absolutely not, Gemma. What did what did you think of Black Christmas? How many times have you seen oh, it? Oh, twice now in the last year. I can't remember who else had it in their picks, but I, I it's so great. And what I love about it, and I've pulled this out from Mags's review um, on Letterboxd, and there are loads of reviews like this. Bonus points for being an actual great feminist piece, and in a mm. way, this film, which came out in 1974, The Exorcist is 1973, there's a there's a little bit of a mirror speaking to each other in a way in terms of how women, American women, white women in these films, are experiencing their right to education, careers, freedom, jobs, and horror is, is coming into their houses. And I really love that about this. Like, then, in, in many, many ways, you've got these women who are... Um, you know, they're being sexually active. They're just going out and getting abortions because it's 1974 and it's post Roe versus Wade and you can, and it's normal and it's not judgy. And even the killer certainly isn't judging that part of it. And yeah, the movie is so ahead of its time. Um, I'm really glad that you brought that up because uh, it's all throughout the movie where there's, uh, they're exploring social issues that, uh, Look, horror is is a great vehicle for social commentary, exploring social issues, whether it's, um, you know, abortion and women's rights in, in Black Christmas, or uh, whether it's uh, gender or race, sexual orientation. Horror has always been, in my opinion, the best vehicle for, for a lot of these, like, uh, these discussions. Mm-hmm. Black Christmas is a great example. There's even a scene in Black Christmas where... Uh, and what's this is so funny because, like, you know, when you think of a frat house, so many things would be accepted, right? You know, the posters of like girls in bikinis yeah. and, and whatever, you know, Playboy magazines. But there's the most innocent poster in Black Christmas of, uh, I think there's like um, some nude women forming a peace sign <laughs> with their bodies. And, you know, they're having to like cover it up because, you know, this this man came by, this guy that was supposed to like, you know, like he's checking up on the, on the sorority. God forbid, you know, that these. These girls have any sort of like they're they're sub people, you know. They can't be sexually active or even have these feelings. You know, like God forbid they have a poster on the wall of of of, of nudity, even naked women. You know, yeah. wild to think. It's it's crazy. But like that's that's where we were. That's where we still are. I think in a lot of respects. Yeah. The one of the things that I love about this movie, I think each of my letterbox reviews have pointed out. Maybe they should have checked the upstairs. The cops. <laughs> <laughs> or anyone I love so some of my buddies left funny reviews of like there's no way these cops wouldn't search the house after mm-hmm. that like at any point that just cracks me up but the other thing yeah. that I love about this movie is the telephone guy oh man 
when they're trying to trace that call, oh my God, I would watch a Ken Burns documentary just on telephone technology from the 70s. It's so cool seeing him like plug everything, trying to trace the call. Holy yeah. smokes. That was so rad. What would what would films like this and the Scream series do in the age of cell phones? I mean, I guess Find My iPhone could be pretty extraordinarily scary if mm. if, a, if a killer had one of your devices. I'm sure it's on the way. Right? Someone is filming it right now, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, man. Before we get dig in, we're going to dig in so hard. I have so many call-outs to the Waxwork releases that we're going to get into. But the all-timer, William Freakin, William Peter Blatty, 4.0 average on Letterboxd. We're talking real deal, 4.0 average, 1973. Does this one warrant a synopsis? It's about two priests trying to exercise a demon. I wrote a beautiful, this is the one synopsis I wrote. Oh. <laughs> and you're like, do we even need it? Do we even need it? I didn't even look at it. There's I wasn't a, sure if it was the OG one or if this was a gem one. There's about to be a slasher film on the Letterboxd show, folks. Chris McNeil just wants to be a successful, wealthy, sweary working actress and solo mom living in her mansion with her staff supporting her. But then her daughter, Reagan, finds a Ouija board and suddenly all the men of science and the cloth are up in their business. <laughs> That's a pretty good new synopsis. <laughs> what do you think, Kevin? How many points? How many stars out of five? Uh, if you're not giving anything away. <laughs> so this is William Friedkin's most popular film, second highest rated film behind The Sorcerer on Letterboxd. It is mm. the eighth most popular horror of the 20th century. And it, on our uh, all-time horror list, it's number 35. It is also the first horror film to win the Oscar for its screenplay. And that comes through really clearly in a lot of Letterboxd reviews, you know, around how it's such a good example of scene setting. It's such a good example of genuinely great film editing. The slow burn is so mesmerizing, writes Lucy. And most other possession movies made afterwards have no nuance compared to this. So let's dive in before we even get to what it was like to work with William Friedkin on the soundtrack release. Let's dive into when you first saw the Exorcist for the first time. How many times have you watched it? What do you get out of it each time you rewatch? Great questions because it's one of those movies that I think I've watched more than. Uh, there's a few of them: uh, The Exorcist, Taxi Driver, you know, Apocalypse Now. These are movies that I've seen countless times, and The Exorcist is one of those movies that, like, it's always good. It's there's never any point where I, I rewatch it and I go like plot hole or you know mm. um they could have done that differently or you know like I, I really and i'm not like a snooty viewer it's just um it's it's perfect it's a perfect movie it's a perfect story it's directed perfectly the score is perfect the casting again these are all my opinions but i mean i know that like it's, it's it is a very famous film um it's wild uh Working with William Friedkin to release the soundtrack was a highlight of um, the past 170 releases that we've done over the t past 10 years. Uh, it, it's shocking that, to me, that we even had that opportunity. I'm, I'm so grateful that we had that opportunity. And then it led to us working with him on Cruising. It, it led to us working with him on Sorcerer, which we've released as well. Um, but to go and, and uh, release the full soundtrack to The Exorcist uh, from the original masters. You know, we had the option of like, of, of using the, the, the digital transfers that, that were done back in like the nineties, I guess for like, for something. But I was like, Hey, are the master tapes available? Can we just like revisit the original masters? And sure enough, they're, they were in an archive in the Midwest where I guess Warner brothers keeps all of their amazing things. And uh, they were able to transfer it, and that's what we worked from. And that even it, another layer of how awesome it was to work on this project. Um, but yeah, I'm getting way too much into like the personal side of it. Uh, the Exorcist is it's rad. It's great, great movie. I mean, those 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 personal details are what we're here for. I mean, <laughs> I can't even imagine working with him, getting the masters to put this together. I mean, even the overall design too for your release is so gorgeous. I mean, it's so hard because how do you top the Exorcist? poster and then you have that beautiful shot which is i mean there's so many all-time shots in this movie how do you top it how do you top that original poster that's it's it's part of like 
it's part of our culture, you know, that movie it's just, it's so visually rich. All of the, um, like the title treatment alone, you know, when it comes onto the screen and you see it, it just like, it, it's, it's, uh, it grabs you. It's scary. It's terrifying. And they're not even using any sort of like scary font or letters. It's just like, you're like, holy shit, I'm in it. I'm in it. And, um, when we, uh, we're in the process of working on the artwork with Phantom City Creative, uh, that's, uh, Justin Erickson. We didn't know what, what direction to go in, but he provided us with a lot of different options. And um, we w- the first option that we went with was the one that, that you see on the actual record and the, the whole layout of, of, of it. You know, mm-hmm. the crazy shot of, of Reagan in the bed with Pazuzu behind her and the light shining. She's all backlit. And uh, we went with that and we brought it to, to William Friedkin. And there's a whole round of approvals that all, yeah. all of us needs to go through with the studio and um, uh, with with William Friedkin, he paid us the craziest compliment ever, and he said, "This is the best artwork that I have ever seen for The Exorcist since the original poster." Wow! And I immediately, I was like texting, you know, I'm texting <laughs> Justin Erickson. I'm like, dude, you will not believe what William Friedkin literally just told me. Uh-huh. Huge compliment, and you know, props yeah. to Justin for for making that happen. I mean, like, it's just. It, the back cover has like you know the holy wa- holy water the jar of holy water like spilled the levitation of of, of Re- Reagan when she's being possessed that crazy point of the movie for the inner gatefold yeah um, yeah yeah it's just it, it was it was amazing to hear that there needs to be a waxwork records podcast yeah. where you guys walk through <laughs> the various releases and the process maybe like a look back on each release that'd be pretty fun maybe like a limited edition series you know it's actually something that like we're, we're exploring right now because i would love to to do that and like you know bring on like rob zombie and people that we work with all the time like flanagan mm-hmm. you know? yeah every time i rewatch the exorcist i like think to myself like how is this a mainstream movie in 1973 mm-hmm. like it might have been an x-rated film like every time I watch it, I just still can't believe. I mean, I love it. It's like an almost perfect movie, but I always think back like, man, I would have loved to have been in theaters to get the reaction of the every man leaving that theater. They must have been just totally horrified. You know, I read the liner notes that William Freakin did for us for this release, uh, for the soundtrack release that we did uh, back in 2017 to prepare for, for this podcast. And um, it was almost an X rating. He was totally under the presumption that like this is going to get an x like there's no way that this is going to get anything but an x rating um yeah and all of the he's so i could listen to him speak for forever you know so um the liner notes are really informative of like the the trials and, and just like the the effort that was put forward to get just the soundtrack made because it wasn't going to be the soundtrack as we hear it in the movie it was going to be scored by I think Bernard Herman was ah. originally tapped to make it happen. And that fell through because think about those two strong personalities. I mean, Bernard Herman is known for being, well, he was known for being so abrasive and speaking his mind. And basically you meet him for the first time and he would say the F word like 30 times. Within the first one, you know, <laughs> He sounds um, like when Reagan is, you know, being possessed. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> And then William Freakin, who also is a very strong personality, and like he he walks the walk, talks the talk. I mean, he's no bullshit. Um, there's very few people that I've met like that that are just like 100% for real, mm. sharp as a knife, always on, like 100. It's so cool. Like when you meet people like that and you, you speak to them, and they're just like, man, you, you're you're real. You're for real. You know, like how many people can right. you say that about? I've got a question for both of you, gentlemen. Would this film ever have been made or even work if it were about a solo father and his son? Mm, I don't know. I really don't. I mean, I mean, Ellen, Ellen is so amazing in this movie. Mm-hmm. Every, I mean, she, she like captures the camera every time she's on screen. Like when she's talking with him in the park, she's got the sunglasses on <sighs> after she like gets almost like knocked you know, knocked to the ground. Yeah, and, and also she's, she's a like, famous actress and she's trying to yes. be low-key yeah. whilst having bru- I, a bruised up face, yeah. I, yeah, I, she, I mean, she's wearing the biggest sunglasses on the planet and she's still having trouble covering up that bruise on her face. <laughs> <laughs> but when she asked him about an exorcism, I love his reaction. He's like, that's junk, that's nothing. Yeah. We don't even do that anymore. It's like, an, it's like a dying thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, those are some of my favorite parts of this movie. But in terms of like a, a dad and a son, like there's no way that would have held up so many years no. as this has. Yeah, like uh, it's just so effective, you know, like the innocence of Reagan and this uh, this this mother dealing with it. Um, you know, I I know a lot of mothers and like their their children. It's the most precious, special. Like I would do anything for. Um, yeah, like I, I just don't think it would be as effective as a father and son. There's a review from Matt Brown that on Letterbox that I was. It's a four star review, by the way, even though it doesn't sound like it. Um, that really spoke to what I was feeling as I was watching it for Confession Safe Space the first time this week Whoa. in my life. Okay. Yeah. So here's the thing. Growing up, Linda Blair was such an icon. We had never seen the film. There is no way our parents would let us see the film, but we absolutely knew who she was. She was the girl who turned her head around. Uh, it's it's sort of hard to explain how, you know, in this in the age before social media, why she was so imprinted on our brains. But I, you know, so, I guess something about it and also growing up Catholic, I've I've sort of avoided this film so far. Mm. Um loved it. But let, let me read Matt Brown's review. Oh, I heard a butt. I heard a butt <laughs> as soon as she said love. Yeah, it. you heard that <laughs> that invisible butt. So Matt Brown writes, almost no end to the list of beings this film others as a means of generating dread in its white Catholic audience. The entire population of Iraq, characters with disfigurements, mental illness, decrepit old age, the oldest and truest of them all, a 12-year-old girl who might stop being so sweet if she gained something resembling bodily autonomy. And this mm. is, uh, so there's, so oh. you've got the coming of age of, of Reagan, uh, who also, by the way, is sort of living, but happily so, oh. in a broken family. The dad has gone somewhere else. He doesn't call on her birthday. The mum is holding down a career. This is 1973. There are political messages in the film that's being shot at the beginning that the priest is interested in. He's questioning his faith, Father Karras, at a time sort of soon after Vatican II. So post-Vatican II, when the church is trying to be a little bit more open and less Latin in order to continue asserting its authority over its, uh, you know, populace, its parish. Um, There's a whole lot in the setup that suggests that the way that Chris McNeil is living is potentially not correct, that she's living as a solo mum, that she's living with a career, that she's letting her daughter muck around in the basement and find Ouija boards in the cupboard um, and be looked after by household staff. And I think here's the but for me. I saw Poltergeist a couple of weeks ago, and what I absolutely loved about that film is that the mom is there from the start to the finish and she is the one who saves the child in this mm. one the mom she's amazing you're you're 100 correct slim ellen is extraordinary she's like she's going through all of these doctors all of, they're giving her daughter spinal tap multiple spinal taps they they want to what they say exhaust all of the somatic possibilities before they move into the spiritual and eventually she's just pushed away and pushed away and pushed away until she's not just outside the room but down the stairs and sort of has no part in the denouement. Uh, mm. And it, I think that for me was the one bum disconnect. note. Yeah, the one disconnect was where was she in that? And it's and it's because she's swear, like she blasphemes. That moment when she's on the phone, she's like, I've been on this phone, Jesus Christ, I've been on this phone for 20 minutes. You know, she's just blaspheming throughout the film. You could also say, too, that there are very different income classes, mm. those two families. You know, Joe Beth and Fam love Joe Beth Williams. Yes. From Poltergeist, my queen. But <laughs> you could say that, you know, they're not affording any help. You know, they're 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 regular 80s family. And they're yeah. going to do it themselves. Uh, I don't know how, where you stand on that thought, Kevin. Yeah, that's so. First off, Gemma, that's a really great analysis, and I totally see what you're saying because, like, um, again, I, I couldn't imagine any mother being like, "Yeah, that's okay. I'll go. I'll go down there. Like, I'll be separated from this madness, you know. Like, while my baby is being literally possessed, you know, that's a good uh, point that you're making, Slim, about um, the 
the class divide. You could say that the main mistake that they made was using a Ouija board in your own home. That's step one. You (laughs) never use a Ouija board (laughs) in your own home. You don't know what you unlock. Yeah. And you have to go to bed in that house. Another mistake yeah. they made, or maybe not a mistake, uh, just judging by the number of letterbox reviews that mention it, is just how hot Father Damien Karras is. <laughs> like, there's the <laughs> so many hot priest reviews <laughs> scrolling through. They are cracking me up. <laughs> it's, the, it's the Vatican again. They're like, okay, William, you gotta, you got to cast a hot guy. we got to make the church relevant. <laughs> Jim, it's like... I guess like backtrack for a second, but do you think, and look, this might not be my place to say, but do you think it's kind of like time and place? Like where were we at in the early seventies? hundred percent time and place. We're, like we're talking so like, Nixon, we're talking, you know, economic change. We're talking change in the households. It's, it's, and this yeah. is why I wanted to kind of pair it with Black Christmas. Cause I feel like mm-hmm. on the one hand, Black Christmas is kind of going, um, yeah, do what you want. It's really awesome. But also, maybe look in the ceiling and get mm. better cops. I don't know. <laughs> and, oh, you know what? The other thing, and I know that much has been written about this, but it's also the time of the rise in psychiatry in America. And this yeah. this is very much in sort of anti-psychiatry film in a way because they're going through all of the steps to diagnose until eventually it's like Father Merrin arrives and he doesn't need any evidence or any backstory or any spinal taps or the 88 doctors. He just needs his purple stolen, his cassock and his holy water and he's away. Maybe it's a coincidence. I don't know. But like, it's just one of those those weird situations where like, uh, so when you're watching the scene of Reagan going through all of the tests and like, um, there's a, there's a, there's a nurse, a male nurse, and you can spot him pretty easily because he's wearing a leather um, wristband. Ah. Uh, Looks a little like punk, a little, maybe like, bondage wristband type type deal Mm -hmm. but in real life william freaking said that uh in real life that guy was the the serial killer from cruising that that cruising is based off of that guy that actual actor he's not an well he wasn't even an actor and that's what's so cool about like freaking is that you would cast people that they're not well obviously not everyone but in, in several of his movies, there would be people in his movies that you know in the background that are you're totally not an actor like that guy was actually a male nurse in real life. But, um, you know, cruising was what, 1980, 1981. Yeah. When he was doing research to make, to make cruising, he's like, why does that guy's name sound familiar? Or why is this guy, you know, (laughs) Oh my God. Like backtrack, but he's like, Oh shit. The male nurse in that scene from the exorcist, that's the guy, that guy was going to like, you know, gay clubs in in the seventies and cruising, picking up dudes taking them back to his apartment and dismembering them. And he was taking the body parts and throwing them into the Easter river. And the way that he got caught is because the bags that he was using to put the body parts in had, um, they were from the hospital that he was working at. They oh had like they were screen printed or they were stamped with the hospital's either address or, you know, initials or whatever. And, um, so they, you know, cops put, connected the dots and, and mm-hmm. led back to him. And he actually went back and interviewed that guy before he made cruising and, and was asking him, you know, like, why'd you do it? You know, why, why did you, uh, you know, commit these crazy, these crazy, uh, murders? And he's like, I didn't, I didn't know I was on drugs and, and fucking, it was just a wild time. I don't actually remember committing a lot of these murders. I was just so fucked up. Wow. And, um, There's some things I don't remember. But I would certainly remember maybe committing murder. Yeah, you one would think. One would think that you <laughs> say that now, but you never know. Do you remember, Kevin, the day you walked into the new waxwork building mm-hmm. when it was ready, finally ready to move into and stock? What what were you feeling? What an achievement. So a lot of times when we're doing we're so like married to it. And it's always go time. Like we're so, like always everything is like, you know, 100 miles per hour. So it isn't until like, you know, we look back and we're like, wow, we've been in this building for a year now. Um, the company's been around for a decade now. And uh, definitely, you know, there's a sense of like accomplishment and, you know, we feel proud of where we are now because where we are now is a vastly different position than where Sue Ellen and I were back in 2012, 2013, when we were getting the company started. Everything that we do 
it's, it comes from like, there's no sort of like big, crazy planning. Okay. What's, what's our five-year plan? You know, it's, it's all, uh, predicated on what do we like? What are we fans of? What, what is it that we want to own? You know, what is the kind of, uh, records or, or artwork or whatever that we want to have in our, in our space. And that's what we try to make. There's never sort of like, Hey, you know, this, this will sell 10,000 copies. Let's go do it. You know, like that's just, that's never, that discussion never comes up. But, um, I know now like with where we are as a company and with a lot of the titles that we put out and now that certain companies like, you know, Netflix and certain creators like Mike Flanagan or, you know, Rob Zombie or Jordan Peele, well, we're like their preferred label to release all of their, yeah. their work. Um, everything's very big. Everything's very, uh, uh, everyone knows about it. Like everyone knows about Nope. Everyone knows about, uh, um, you know, Rob Zombie's a household name. But if you uh, were to ask us, even if like none of those titles were on the table, uh, what are your favorite movies that have come out in the past like few years? I'd be like, well, us get out <laughs> like mm-hmm. the haunting of Hill house, you know, uh, I just feel as if like we're, we're fans of this stuff and it just, it's, it, it's a weird, this is a little like off topic, but like, uh, like recently Glenn Danzig came to waxwork oh. and we hung out fucking Glenn Danzig. <laughs> I was the biggest, I still am like the misfits, probably the misfits are like the single most important band misfits, black flag, like early hardcore, but specifically the misfits because of like the DIY ethic the horror of it all. Like, you know, the devil, I had a devil lock, you know, like everything was like (laughs) the bands that I was in, we tried emulating the misfits. We wore engineer boots and everything. (laughs) And there was no sort of like, uh, we weren't trying to bring Danzig Danzig into our orbit. It just happened by, I guess, happenstance because like, I, I, I'm a firm believer that like, if you, you do these things and like, you come at them like with a, I guess, like, I guess truth, you know, like, um, you find you find with you find your tribe like punk rock. You find your your tribe and they find you. You know, huge Rob Zombie fan, White Zombie, massive, massive. Uh, you know, the very first cassette that I ever had stolen from me was a White Zombie Less Exorcist. <laughs> the very first thing that I ever stole was a White Zombie Less Exorcist CD. Linking my cassette, so I had to get it back. So I upgraded and I stole the CD. Well, so question: When a young punk comes into waxwork and puts puts a vinyl up there jersey <laughs> what are you gonna do are you gonna let them get away with it because it's you it's a little you or are you gonna like call the cops <laughs> my earliest memory of glenn glenn danzig is probably that photo of him holding the wolverine comic book I think I remember seeing that like as because I I grew up a a comic book. I'm still am, and that's like one of my earliest memories of Glenn Glenn Danzig ever. When Glenn Danzig comes to visit, like, does do you make him a cup of tea or he puts a record under his shirt and he (laughs) weasels out? He probably is the one stealing those records. I actually gave him a bunch of stuff. Like, I just, I just, hey, dude, whatever you want. I was a nervous wreck, man. Like, I was. The very I had to go pick him up from his hotel, and you know, so the very first time that I'm like hanging out with Glenn Danzig, it, it wasn't just like, hey, we're we're meeting at like a show or something backstage. It's like I'm freaking out because I'm picking this dude up from his hotel, and it's like, okay, now we're in a car together for 20 minutes driving to Waxwork. It's like, what is my life? What is going on right now? But um, yeah, I, I feel as if like when we finally walked into like this this new building that we're in now, like it was a we have a lot of work to do. You know, it's like, it, it really felt as if like, uh, you know what it felt like? I was overcome with the same feelings that I had when, when we first started Waxwork Records back in 2013. I was like, wow, like this is it. We're starting again because we're opening up a pressing plan. Like the re- we needed to move anyway because we had totally outgrown the space that we were in prior. We keep, we just kept outgrowing spaces. Um, this is our, our fourth space that we've, we've been in. And I think that we're going to be here for a while because it's it's pretty big and sprawling. You know, it, we, you know, we needed to move out, but we purchased this building because we're we're building a, a record pressing plant, oh, and it, it yeah. felt as if like, okay, new chapter. Here we go. Let's go. I mean, talk talk a bit about needing to make your own plant because I I feel like a lot of people are starting to have their eyes open to mm-hmm. records if they haven't already started buying some of these releases. Yeah, that it's advantageous to you 
to just like, let's just bring everything in-house at this point because everything is maybe getting more expensive. Yeah. It's blowing yeah. up. Is, is that the case with this new location? Absolutely. Um, you know, like each, each year, when we started the label a decade ago, you know, vinyl was, was making a, it was making a big comeback. It was coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, I already had experience releasing vinyl several years prior to that with various bands that I've been in. But um, so it's always something that I've done. But, but vinyl sales were increasing, increasing, increasing year after year. And then when COVID hit and everyone was home and there was nothing to do, it really shined a light on how crucial physical media is, um, whether that be Blu-rays or board games, puzzles, or vinyl records. And we had flirted with the idea of opening a pressing plant like as far back as like 2017, but we just it wasn't the time. Uh, we didn't have the money. We didn't have the space for it. We were still fledgling, I guess. And I guess in, in a way, I, we still are. You know, we're still a very small label. Um, I know that like the visuals of like, how we are presented on Instagram and like the titles that we get look a certain way, but we're, we're still a very small company. There's six of us here. Um, and that fluctuates. Sometimes we have 10 people, people go. Sometimes we have six people. Sometimes we have four. It's always been me and Sue Ellen running you know, driving the bus. You got Danzig doing customer support emails right now. He's in the <laughs> yeah. back, typing away at that computer. <laughs> Kevin's face right now. I was, I, I as you were talking, as you were talking about your size, I was thinking about how you're like nine years old, letterboxes, 11 years old. You know, we've all come up around the same time along with a lot of other similar companies that growing and developing and existing to serve fans of this art form, these art forms we love and just wanted to say what a beautiful big old handshake fist pump moment this is (laughs) 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 to talk on the several because we're a tiny team too. Same thing. It may, it may look from our socials, uh, from, you know, from the New York times articles on us that we're huge, but it's, it's basically just me and Slim. (laughs) And a few, a few others. (laughs) And a few others, a few other amazing people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just, you know, tinkering away uh, under the hood. And, but, you know, to the to the end purpose being that people can, on Letterboxd, for example, organise their, you know, their physical criterion collection, you know, by using their own tag when they are adding films to their Letterboxd. Um you know, and you're and you're doing the same thing, and it's all. Here's the big point: it's all in service of finding a physical way to show our love for this, these ephemeral art forms that are film and music that exist through pulses from our eyes and our ears into our brain. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I love what you guys are doing. I know this is this is going to become a big cheesy hug fest now, but <laughs> I, I knew that about you guys that it was a small team, but like, you know, the projection is, is huge. And like, um, what I love about letterbox is that it's not just any one thing. It's not snooty people like making reviews and like critics and stuff like that. I never pay attention to that, but there's such a truth. And, um, I guess, uh, it's, it's a civil conversation with, at least in my experience, I'm sure there's crazy mean reviews on Letterboxd that I just haven't found yet, but everything seems very civil. And it's just like, Hey, I like what I like. I don't like what I don't like. And that's that. And it's, it's a very honest place. That's what I love about Letterboxd. It's just such a, it's, it's like this crazy cool platform for people that just love movies. It's so killer. Well, speaking of killer, I was going to say, this is the cheese fest. I mean, this is not the horror podcast we promised people. So shall we talk about (laughs) House, your fourth favorite. That's right. And don't forget, everyone listening, don't forget to watch, rewatch House, tag it Waxwork to potentially win this gorgeous new release that's coming towards the end of the year. Nobuhiko Obayashi, written by Chiho Katsura and Chimigumi Obayashi. This is uh, it's an amazing film that I saw for the first time earlier this year because I was just looking on the Criterion channel on my Apple TV and went... It's that poster. I'm going to have to watch that film because that poster keeps staring back at me. So this in this film, I don't know, there's a synopsis. It, 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 like pretty much all of the films we've been discussing 
today. Synopsis kind of doesn't matter. Just look at the poster and watch the film. But hoping to find a sense of connection to her late mother, Gorgeous takes a trip to the country to visit her aunt at their ancestral house and she invites six friends, Prof, Melody, Mac, Fantasy, Kung Fu and Sweet to join her. They soon discover there's more to the old titular house than meets the eye. When did you first see House, Kevin? What was that like? Back in like 2011 is the first time that I saw it and um, blew my mind. The movie blew my mind. The first time I saw this was I think like last year. This was on like, this is one of those letterboxed movies that I talk about. Like this one is really popular on letterboxd. This is on so many lists. Like this is one of my favorite lists on letterboxd. It's talked about a lot, but it's, you're not the same person once the film has finished from Andre, (laughs) where it's just one of those movies where you kind of are in awe of your experience. And you can't say that a lot about a lot of movies. So coming into this movie, you're, I think I wrote in some of my notes, like cinematic LSD, it feels like, <laughs> when you're watching this movie. You're like, am I? I don't remember taking drugs before I sat down to watch this, but it feels like I am on drugs. Yeah. And there's not many movies that can kind of put you in that space, but House is definitely one Favorite of them. Favorite scene, Slim. Favorite moment. Was it the teenage oh girl getting eaten by a piano? Was it <laughs> the amazingly beautifully framed conversation with her father on the balcony of that gorgeous apartment yes I, I mean there's so there's so many scenes like that like when they're standing in front of that one set piece you know and then the camera like shifts and it's like that you know that bus stop billboard type deal <laughs> where there's so many like inventive things like that and I compared it to I think on my first view I compared it to George Lucas this is the same year came out the same year as Star Wars and it has like some of those like circle wipe transitions where I was like, oh man, this, I wonder if they got this from Star Wars, like an idiot. <laughs> it came out the same year. Like, oh, okay. Um, but there's just so much of that where I don't, I'm, I'm not seeing this elsewhere. And I think Tetsuo was the same thing. Like, I'm not seeing a, another Tetsuo anywhere. And yeah. it's crazy that you can have those kind of new experiences discovering movies like this still today. That scene with the well. And, you know, Max severed head coming out of the well. Oh, my gosh. Uh, <laughs> that scene stuck with me when I first watched it. And, like, I immediately thought, oh, Evil Dead 2. Like, that's totally <laughs> Evil Dead 2 right there. Like, this movie has influenced so many filmmakers. It's so crazy and outside the box. Um, but speaking of influences, Ayo Edeberry, the actress who's on Letterboxd, writes, and related to George Lucas, but she writes of um, Obayashi-san, the director. My favorite part about this is that he saw Jaws and said, I would like to make a movie like Jaws. And then he made this movie. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> did you guys spot the Spielberg references? Cause... I did not. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, we did a lot of research when we were, you know, working on, on this, you know, I guess you did as one does when they work on something for almost a decade. And uh, yeah, I just couldn't see where the parallels are met between Jaws and Hamsu. That's just me. Maybe it's a cultural <laughs> right. thing. I don't know. Well, I mean, you talked about working on this for 10 years, and mm-hmm. this is the first time the soundtrack will be out and about outside of Japan since 77. Mm-hmm. So me, like, the we've you've, I think as of today, the release has been shared on Twitter so you can see, like, the beautiful artwork. And I think our Letterbox account will have an unboxing, but, like... What's that process like of you hunting down the right person to talk to? Like, I yeah. want to release House on vinyl. Who the F do I talk to? <laughs> like, in my head, I would just be totally lost. But now I was thinking earlier about, like, Jordan Peele. I'm, it was cracking me up. I didn't say anything earlier. But, like, imagine hearing from some other director, like, oh, yeah, I got your number from Jordan Peele. Like, what an amazing <laughs> sentence that is. <laughs> so, I mean, how do you start the process for something like this and eventually, over the course of a decade, finally get it? You mentioned hunting it's a lot like like that it's detective work um it it didn't hurt that we had a good relationship with toho already but that took years to get to you know working with toho and releasing the godzilla stuff but toho um that was only a piece of the puzzle and it wasn't even who we worked with to to license the score back when we first started and like house it was one of those titles that was like okay we have to release that for various reasons it's an amazing movie it's an amazing soundtrack it's never been released outside of japan um we just love this film how do we how do we make this happen and make it deluxe and um i straight up was waiting until like wild hours of the early morning to call japan just cold calling people (laughs) in japan 
I was like, okay, well, if it's, if it's 11 p.m. here, it's got to be this time in Japan. So I'm going to call them then because they're in the office. You know, I'm like, I don't know who the hell I'm calling. I'm just calling random people. <laughs> and none of them spoke any English. I was like, okay, this is not the way. This is totally like, this is, this is a busted way of doing anything. Why am I doing this? But I mean, like, you got to try. You have to, like, shoot your shot. So mm-hmm. um, sometimes that works, you know. But uh, we have a really good relationship with um, some people over at Janus Films. And they they were like, why don't you just reach out to the composer? And I was like, why haven't I thought about that? Just reach out to the composer, which we've done a million times with, like, Reanimator, oh, no, the very right. first title we ever did. Yeah. Just reach out to the composer. And uh, I was like, Richard Band, I love your score. Like, let's make Reanimator happen. Boom. And we made it happen. So, yeah, like, it, it, there was, I'm, I'm painting a picture as if, like, it was as easy as, like, just reaching out to Miki Yoshino and, uh, you know, the other composers. Uh, but, you know, there was a lot of, like, red tape management, studio stuff, having to, like, you know, deal with the whole, like, you know, uh, Columbia and Japan. Like, why would you want to release this? Like, what, what are your intentions? There was a lot of, of that that one piece of the puzzle like hey like make your life easier you do this all the time reach out to the composer and see what happens right and and that really helps like having having his blessing and uh yeah it really put us on a trajectory to like okay now i mean it still took years to make it happen after that but uh that was the kind of like the catalyst to really get things moving Plus, you show up for those meetings with Glenn Danzig and Toe, <laughs> yeah. and they're like, listen, whatever you want to do, okay? He's a big fan of Japanese movies and <laughs> yes. music, food, you know? So, it didn't hurt. Yeah, also, I mean, this is also another iconic poster where it, it would be, you would think it would be hard. Like, how do we top the house poster? I mean, not to, now it's my turn to name drop. We were just at the Criterion Closet, yeah. the Criterion Offices a couple nice. weeks ago. And the poster right next to the closet is House. That's like the the, mm. the last poster you see as you get in there. Yeah. I mean, that's hard to top. Yeah, we thought about that too. I mean, that Sam, I think his name is Sam Smith. That poster that he created for for the Criterion release is amazing. It's we were like, how do we top this? Not that we're trying to top it, but like, how do we make something that thousands of fans are going to go like? you should have used the original artwork, man, or you should have used the Criterion did, which we can't do. And it's not what we do. We never, mm-hmm. we never go and like release, release the key art. We've never done that. Um, or if we have on like newer titles, it's because like, you know, we were obligated to for sure. reasons. But um, with Haosu, uh, we were doing some research on artists and we, we work very often with the Jackie Winter group and uh, Jake Foreman, I'm a massive fan of his work is like just it's so good uh we we were looking at his work and watching the movie and we're like he's perfect he would be he would create something totally original totally unique it wouldn't be derivative of anything that's come before and it wouldn't be something derivative of like obviously you want it to be married to the movie but you want to have some sort of like hook and make it unique enough where it's kind of like this is totally new. Obviously it's Haosu, but it's, it's, it's new and it's original and it's fresh and it feels good. It feels right. Um, yeah, Jake Foreman, I, I, I love the artwork that he created. I think this is like one of my top, one of my top releases artwork wise. Um, Hell yeah. yeah, it's so killer. I love it so much. And when you rewatch the movie and you look at the artwork again, you're all like, Oh my God, I, I missed that. You know, like there's certain things yeah. that like he got into the artwork that are just, sort of like not what you would immediately think of when you think of Haosu. Like, obviously you think of the cat and you, you, you know, you think of like um, the piano and stuff like that. The piano is not even, hold on, let me make sure that I'm not, I haven't written here. <laughs> yeah, the piano yes. doesn't even make an appearance in the artwork, you know? So like wow. certain things like that, uh, I love that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the one other, one other one I, call, I wasn't able to call out earlier, um, the Goosebumps artwork. Oh, uh. Like, I can't believe you were able to get the OG artist. Oh my God, that's so cool. Yeah. It's, it's gorgeous. And then make Fantastic. it look like an actual, like, Goosebumps book. To, yeah. Know, it's a lot of, like, you know, we had to work with Scholastic. Can we do this? Can we just totally riff on what you've done and uh, do the, you know, the, the embossing on, like, the Goosebumps letters and make it feel like Goosebumps? That was really cool. Uh, we just reached out directly to Tim Jacobus and, like, hey, do you want to do this? And what was so cool about that is that he, there was a certain character from um the goosebumps i guess like universe back in the 90s that never made an appearance on a book cover and he's like i always wanted to do it this is my chance to put him on the cover of something that's official for goosebumps 
And we did. The, the skeleton character that you yeah. see, he's the mascot of Goosebumps. And he finally, you know, makes his, his appearance on the cover. Unbelievable. We made him happy. That, that was really fulfilling. And like, it, you know, making the creators happy is something that we strive to do. It's, it's crucial that like people that not only uh, wrote or directed or composed, uh, people that worked on the movie, we want to make sure that people uh, are, are totally just thrilled and pleased with, with what we put out. It has to be real. It has to be honest. It can't be some derivative shit that, you know, um, that isn't honest. It, it, it has to have like weight to it and feel right. It has to, I, I get to that. I'm sorry that I'm like, you know, going off on this tangent, but it has to feel a certain way. It has to smell a certain way. Um, it's really crucial, like artist input and making sure that, that the creatives are happy is, is so, so that the studios are happy. It's so crucial to us. Waxwork records, hashtag no derivative shit. <laughs> no derivative <laughs> shit. I'm going to use it. Our guest today was Kevin Bergeron from Waxwork Records, the very good New Orleans folk doing their very best to bring horror soundtracks to our turntables. They're on Letterboxd, so give them a follow. The link is in our notes, along with links to all the reviews and lists and other things we've mentioned. And don't forget to watch House and tag your Letterboxd review with Waxwork before 30th of November 2022. That's this year. Like, basically in the next sort of five weeks, if you're listening on release. To be in to win a copy of the film soundtrack on Gorgeous Final. Nobody worry if you see me rewatch House 10 times. Tag it wax work. I want this release on my bookshelf. We have terms and conditions. Uh, employees. <laughs> I never heard of that phrase before. And terms and that sounds made up. That's a New Zealand mumbo jumbo. Uh, but we also have another podcast here at Letterbox Weekend Watchlist that drop Thursdays. It's our weekly show where Mitchell, me, and me explore the latest releases in cinemas and on streaming every week. Thanks to our crew, Jack for the facts, Brian Formo for booking and looking after our guests. Sophie Shin for the episode transcript, Sam for the art, and to Moniker for the theme music. You can always drop us a line at podcast at letterbox.com. The Letterbox Show is a tape deck production. And I'm just going to uh, do one more shout out to Brian Formo, even though you mentioned him, for lining up such an impeccable, excellent, spooky season row of guests. What a month we've had, Slim. Ty West, stud. Scott Derrickson, Anna Lilia Meapur, Kevin from Waxwork. What a stud. Did you just call him a stud? I just called Brian a stud, <laughs> a booking stud. Don't Google booking stud. I don't know what you'll get in that search result. But what, what, what a job by Brian. Thank you, Brian. One more question. Who left the goddamn door open? <laughs> He's expanded his act. Could that be one person? No, Claire, that's the Mormon Tabernacle Choir doing their annual obscene phone call. This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Ooh.